Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. the intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Friday, the 9th day of December 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we'll be talking to Jessamine West, No, not the long-dead Quaker novelist, rather the anarchist, or is it radical, librarian. She runs the website librarian.net, where the slogan is putting the rare in back in librarian. And we'll be talking about camel libraries and also the widening divide between the digital world and rural libraries. But first, here's some news from the book world. United States House and Senate negotiators reached an agreement late yesterday on a conference report about how to extend the USA Patriot Act, despite continuing opposition from numerous critics, including many in the book world and even a few in the Senate. Among other things, the act allows the government to secretly seize records from libraries and bookstores about what books people are buying or borrowing, and it also allows the government to secretly monitor online usage at libraries. It also criminalizes the act by bookstore owners or librarians of informing customers of that spying. It was set to expire at the end of the month. White House spokesman Scott McClellan applauded the agreement on behalf of the president, but several senators, including Russ Feingold, the only senator to vote against the original act when it was passed in the days immediately after 9-11, issued a statement saying, quote, I will do everything I can, including a filibuster, to stop this Patriot Act conference report, which does not include adequate safeguards to protect our constitutional freedoms, end quote. Feingold and a contingent of five other senators from both parties, including Republicans Larry Craig Johnson Nunu and Lisa Murkowski, as well as Democrats Dick Durbin and Ken Salazar, issued a statement saying they would not support the compromise in any form. The compromise, if passed, would extend the section of the act allowing searches of bookstore and library records by four years, and it would make most of the rest of the act permanent. Four men who stole rare books, including a first edition of Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species from a college library, were sentenced yesterday to seven years in prison uh, in a federal courthouse. That's not where the prison is, that's where they were sentenced. Eric Bursuk, Charles Allen, Warren C. Lipka and Spencer Reinhardt were arrested after authorities traced an email they sent to Christie's Auction House in New York trying to sell the items, which were taken from the library of Transylvania University in Kentucky. Their sentence was the minimum allowed by federal sentencing guidelines, but the lawyer for Borsuk said his client planned to appeal. Quote, He's 20 years old, facing the prospect of serving 87 months in federal prison, said the attorney. He's just an immature young man who made a decision that's going to affect the rest of his life in a very negative way. End quote. Kids, return those overdue books. 
a Northern Irish academic has been given the go-ahead to write the first secret official history of the British Secret Intelligence Agency, the SIS, or as it is more popularly known in James Bond movies, MI6. Keith Jeffrey, a professor of British history at Queen's University, Belfast, will be given access to SIS secret files from the service's creation in 1909 until the early Cold War in 1949. No explanation for the 1949 cutoff was given, but Foreign Secretary Jack Straw, who approved Jeffrey's selection, said, quote, this appointment marks another progressive move by SIS, this time by producing an authoritative history which is intended to appeal both to professional historians and the general public. And quote. Jeffrey, meanwhile, said the access to the secret archives made him, quote, feel like a child in a sweetie shop. I will be able to throw light on certain parts of history that have not had light shown on them before. End quote. Such as those sweeties in the archives, no doubt. Author Bill Bryson has been announced among several scientists as a winner of this year's prestigious Descartes Prize for science communication for his book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. The award, which was launched just two years ago to reward outstanding achievements in bringing science and technology to wider audiences in Europe, gives 50,000 pounds to five winners each year. According to the director of the Royal Society, which administers the award, Bryson's book about trying to fill in the gaps of his scientific knowledge, quote, has helped to inspire, engage, and enthrall a whole generation about the excitement and wonder of scientific discovery. And finally, a story coming out of yesterday's sad observations of, of the 25th anniversary of the assassination of John Lennon. Historian John Weiner reports that more than two decades after he filed a Freedom of Information Act request for the FBI file on John Lennon as research for his book on the government surveillance and harassment of Lennon, 10 pages of that file are still being kept secret because of, quote, national security. Says Wiener, author of the book, Give Me Some Truth, The John Lennon Files, quote, at a time when we are confronted by life and death issues of terrorism, the FBI is trivializing national security in the name of political expediency, close quote. Wiener and the American Civil Liberties Union first filed their request in 1983, but as recently as October of this year, the FBI has filed a court appeal to resist giving over those final 10 pages. Wiener says that while most of the FBI's files concerned Lennon's anti-war efforts against the Nixon administration, he believes the missing 10 pages are being withheld by request of the British government, and that they are reports on Lennon's contacts with the British New Left. Lennon associated with Tariq Ali, among others in London, and various British anti-war organizations. The fight continues. That's news, or is it, for Friday, the 9th of December, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's December 9th, and on this day in literary history in 1608, the English poet John Milton was born in London. Milton is known today for his great epic poem, Paradise Lost, yet he also wrote many political pamphlets defending civil and religious rights. 
He wrote a whole series of influential pamphlets on the morality of divorce, defending the liberty of the press, and supporting the English Republic and rebelling against the monarchy. After the death of Charles I, Milton published the Tenure of Kings and Magistrates, which held that the people had the right to depose and punish tyrants. After the restoration of Charles II, several of Milton's pamphlets were burned, and he himself barely escaped execution by paying a huge fine, a fine which threw him into poverty. In 1651, Milton became blind, and his later poems were dictated to his daughter, nephews, and friends. One of his assistants was the poet and satirist Andrew Marvell. Living in retirement now, blind and impoverished, Milton devoted himself solely to his poetry. He published Paradise Lost in 1667, with which he attained universal fame, followed by Paradise Regained and Samson Agonistes. But his poverty drove him to sell the rights of Paradise Lost for five pounds, with the promise of another five pounds if the first edition of 1,300 copies sold out. It did in 18 months. In his great epic poem, Milton had created a powerful and sympathetic portrait of Lucifer, a portrait which deeply influenced the romantic poets who saw Satan as the real hero of the poem and as a rebel against the tyranny of heaven. In The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, the poet William Blake stated that Milton was, quote, a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's This Day in Literary History. I know my chickens. You got to know you are chickens. I know my chickens. You got to know you are chickens. I'm on the line with Jessamine West. First of all, Moby Liz readers or listeners should know she is not an amazingly well-preserved Quaker author from the 20th century, but rather she is an anarchist librarian who runs the website librarian.net, where the slogan is, or at least used to be, putting the rare in back in librarian. Uh, Jessamine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, before we get going, what exactly is an anarchist librarian? Well, it's uh, it's sort of a number of things. It's not it's not really a club. It's just sort of a combination of uh, two outlooks that seem to uh, go really well together. I have a tendency to say radical librarian now instead of anarchist librarian because anarchist sort of brings together a whole bunch of uh, politics that I don't necessarily want to bring in. But in a general sense, what it means is somebody who's committed to not only sort of the the organization sharing codifying and helping people part of librarianship, but also trying to minimize the barriers between sort of the sort of ivory tower ideal of pure information and actually thinking of books and information as things that sort of only exist in their usability-ness and how people get access to it. And so trying to break down barriers to access, break down hierarchical structures that, that inhibit that sort of access and sort of remove that I'm the librarian behind the big, tall desk, and I'm in charge, and I'm going to stand between you and what you want, which is an answer to your question. Mm -hmm. And so it's a slightly different approach. It's more a philosophy than an actual practice, though there are different groups of radical librarians who have different sort of practical applications. Radical reference is the one that 
comes to mind most obviously, but also just lots of different ways we can take the librarian out of the library or keeping the librarian in the library, breaking down barriers to helping people access information, breaking down barriers to access. Well, a part of your efforts have involved this terrific website, librarian.net, that I've been visiting for years. I'm sure you've got a big following there. You've got a, a great item, just to give one example of the, of the wide variety on the site. You've got a great item this week about a, uh, uh, a camel library. Uh, what, what exactly is that one about? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating little sort of news story that I read, um, I think, on another website, which was about the, I believe it's the National Library of Kenya, who they've got this one, I guess, county is what you'd call it, uh, really terrible, terrible literacy rates, real terrible sort of reading problem, incredibly poor, just unimaginably almost poor from our perspective. Um, schools that run on budgets of almost nothing. I mean, we're not talking about people who don't have access to computers. We're talking about people who, you know, are primarily nomadic. They, they herd their cattle where the... Um, you know, where the water is and where the food is, and the National Library started this, uh, I guess you could call it an outreach program, but really you call it sort of a library program, um, using camels as sort of a bookmobile, if you will, to deliver books to these remote areas where, in many cases, people don't even have books, and they uh, are doing it sort of as a combination hey, let's just give these people books in the first place, but also to try and work on sort of literacy and education rates, which, of course, as you probably know, trickle down into all sorts of other mm -hmm. social goods like better health care, uh, you know, lower violence, helping people sort of work their way out of poverty and have more choices available to them. And the library chose camels uh, specifically instead of just, it's not that they don't have cars, um, but it's a very it's a very familiar um, animal camels are used um, and have been used traditionally to bring to bring food to bring um, to bring supplies and so having the sort of traditional transportation icon which is the camel bringing something that in some cases is new or newish to these people was a really sort of culturally appropriate way to deal with um, literacy and education issues which is one of the things that made it so interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at the American version of that. Strangely enough, this, this seems related to me. I know that one thing you do outside the website is you've been giving a series of talks uh, about the intersection of libraries, technology, and politics. And I might throw in, from having looked at some of your talks at the website now, I might throw in poverty. Um, listeners can, can, can go ahead and look at the slideshow you've got from your presentations at the website. Um, but one thing I notice, first of all, is that you start from a premise that might surprise a lot of people, and that is that there are a lot fewer people online than we might think. Um, who, who, who are some of those people? Who are we talking about here? Well, there's been a lot, of, um, a lot of research coming out, I mean, in general, but also lately, about this concept of the digital divide, the mm -hmm. people who are not online versus the people who are online. Mm -hmm. And it... It maps somewhat to, you know, just people who have less money, have less money to buy a computer and whatnot. But we're also finding that the people who aren't online or who aren't getting online, and which, where I live, I live in rural Vermont, and it's not, um, I guess you'd call it rural poor. It's a different sort of sort of poverty and access to, uh, access to materials and material things. But we... You know, people talk about the broadband revolution, and in my state, which has about 650,000 people-ish 
a little less, um, 15, 20, 25 percent best guess mm -hmm. of those people have high-speed access to the Internet. So it's maybe 100,000 people or so in the entire yeah, state. Yeah, yeah, which means that, um, and then out of the people that are left, uh, I think 60 of them have, 60 percent of them have dial-up, so we're looking at 15, 20 percent um, Roughly 150 who has no access to the internet whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't that they can't get access. Obviously, they can go to the library and use a computer. Most of the libraries in the state have uh, computers with at least some internet access. Mm -hmm. But one of the um, one of the things that's really missing is someone there to sort of hold your hand and explain all of the things that come with learning how to use a computer. Um, to somebody who, for whom it's an entirely new metaphor. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a kid, nowadays you see computers in school, your friends have computers, whatnot, but if you're, and if, even if you're you know, my age, 30s, 40s, 50s, you have kids that use computers, but the next generation up, 60 plus, mm -hmm. your, ch you'll tr your children may not have used computers. You have maybe an interest in using computers because you want to see pictures of your grandchildren, or you just have to access your tax forms. Mm -hmm. And the big question, the big thing that I keep coming up against in the work that I do and with the people I interact with is who's there to teach those people? I mean, librarians can do a lot of great things, but they're busy people and they don't necessarily have the time for sort of one-on-one -on -one instruction that a lot of people who are new to computers need. And it's not just older people. I mean, there's younger people, people with disabilities have there's a much wider gap in mm -hmm. the sort of online and offline. Um, racially, you wouldn't expect there to be such a chasm, but we find that, you know, black people and white people, they've got about the same amount of sort of cell phone usage all, all through the age groups. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, older black people are not getting online at the rates that young, you know, older white people are. Mm -hmm. And the difference is, is like 10, 15 percent difference, which really is sort of staggering. And mm -hmm. then the big next question is, how come? Mm -hmm. And what does it have to do with poverty? And how do we fix it? Mm -hmm. I mean, as a librarian, I'm really sort of interested in that. But I also know that my colleagues at their jobs don't have the time to just sit down with each person and help. And so there needs to be some sort of structured solution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, is a structured solution being implemented? What, what, what can be done? Well, we're seeing all sorts of different people try to tackle it different ways. I mean, one of the problems uh, is that unlike some issues like um, literacy, I think of, for example, that there's many, many, many sort of grassroots-ish literacy programs in communities all over the place. Community colleges have basic skills classes that are free and supported at some level by Department of Education funding. But... Uh, with a lot of people who aren't online, they're not online for different reasons, and so it's hard to find a scalable solution. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the Gates Foundation brought computers into libraries that might not have used their sort of scarce funds to purchase computers. Mm -hmm. And um, E-rate uh, programs through the federal government have allowed libraries and schools who might not have been able to use their scarce budgets to get them online. And that's all been part of the solution. Now it's it's much harder to argue that the digital divide exists because people don't have a place they can get online. Mm -hmm. And so then the next question is, okay, now what do we do? And I think part of it, I mean, it, it it's easy to say part of it is like, well, wait for the older generation to pass on, and then right. the younger generation all knows it. But I don't I don't think it's that simple. We've seen some mentoring programs, which involve teaming um, retirees with 
younger kids. I mean, a lot of times people who are good with computers don't necessarily become good teachers. Mm-hmm. But if you can sort of buddy up one-on-one, both, both sort of sides of that equation can help inform each other. I work for AmeriCorps. Um, I'm a tech core uh, volunteer. They say it's volunteer, but it's really a paid job. And I, um, <laughs> I get to staff um, a computer lab at the mm-hmm. vocational high school mm-hmm. that goes empty from 3 p.m. till the next morning when school comes in. And all I really do is sit around and answer questions. But people know if they have a question twice a week, mm-hmm. there's someone there that they can go ask, and they have my email address. And so little things like that in communities in neighborhoods. Libraries do a lot of um, technology instruction and education, and some of them run programs like this in well, as well, as well do schools and some sort of com- and community organizations. Mm-hmm. But it takes someone to sort of know what needs to be learned and how to hook up the people who don't know with the people who do know mm-hmm. to be able to move forward with that. And people like the vocational school where I work offering their resources, come use our lab, we're willing to take that risk because it's a benefit to our community, Mm -hmm. and that really sort of helps everyone. Now, I I cited earlier poverty as a factor in this, and you've talked about that a little bit. Um, I noticed on on your presentation on on librarian.net that um, there are a wild variety of reasons that people aren't, uh, aren't getting online or aren't going to libraries and using computers. Um, there was uh, one survey where one of the responses was, uh, I've never heard of the Internet, which I think you know, had a 2% response or something like that. Um, there, was, uh, there was some concern shown over security issues, over things like the Patriot Act. Um, what, are, what are some of the other factors that might surprise people? Well, I think some of the factors are, um, I mean, some of the people that I deal with uh, have all sorts of different sort of interesting issues. A lot of times there's people who are in a partnership. Maybe they're married and their the husband was the one that sort of did the computer stuff and then he died or even, you know, younger cases they split up and then you're left with a computer that you don't really know how it works and a lot of emotional issues wrapped up in that. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, sometimes there's like spyware problems. If you've got a poorly patched computer and it gets sort of riddled with, you know, spyware and malware and whatever, you have a computer that for all intents and purposes doesn't function like a computer and your only solution to getting that fixed is to take it to the computer guys to fix it who will charge you a lot of money and mm-hmm. possibly confuse you um, in the process. I mean, one of the problems is just getting updates to your Windows computer over a dial-up connection, mm-hmm. um, which is what most people in Vermont have, mm-hmm. is, is basically impossible if right. you have one telephone line. Right. Um, for other people, it's, um, I mean, I deal with certain people who have uh, memory problems, you know, just flat out short-term memory problems or like severe dyslexia and a lot of the kind of either fine motor coordination or the immense amount of reading that needs to happen Mm -hmm. sort of wraps up in that. And then there's people who have just old and outdated computers and find that, you know, trying to interact with the Internet, an Internet that's really not designed for them, it's designed for higher speed and people who are savvier, Mm -hmm. is very frustrating and complicated. Mm -hmm. And, um, And, yeah, there's people who haven't really heard of the Internet or who say, what can it do for me? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, one of the things that we saw that was just very, you know, depressing to me as a technology instructor was seeing a lot of people where the first time they had to get on the Internet was when Hurricane Katrina destroyed their house. Mm-hmm. And their options were 
you know, dialing FEMA and getting a busy signal for weeks or figuring out how to use a computer when you're already, you know, having having a really hard time. Right, right. Well, uh, you also mentioned the... Um the gifting by people like the Gates, uh, organizations like the Gates Foundation of computers, but in situations like that, uh, the Gates Foundation, a good example, is there follow-up? Do you get the computer and then two years later when they update uh, the operating system, are you out of luck? Or well, what, what are those situations like? It's a like? good news, bad news situation. I mean, basically the Gates Foundation grants worked fantastic for big libraries that had you know, IT and technical staff. Mm -hmm. uh, the Gates Foundation provided a fair amount of support for the first year or possibly two years. Mm -hmm. And they're actually coming through with another round of support um, because they did a big study and found out that a lot of the computers that they dropped off, either, you know, there were problems with them, staff had difficulty maintaining them or what have you. And, you know, I really go back and forth about whether it's good to give a partial solution and then just tell people to bootstrap it and figure it out, mm -hmm. or if actually having so many people going into libraries where they see computers that only sort of work, you know, that run Internet Explorer, that's been a victim of a whole bunch of browser hijacks that has all these problems, mm -hmm. in some bad cases, I mean, we have many libraries where the computers run perfectly. Um, whether that in and of itself is almost more harmful because it passes on the computers are difficult mm -hmm. message, mm -hmm. And you know, for a lot of for a lot of these libraries, once again, keeping your system updated over dial-up just is not possible. And I'm not sure how you solve that problem. Mm -hmm. We can't make Verizon come to the town of Sharon, mm -hmm. and so they don't have broadband access. Mm -hmm. And that's a you know that's a redlining sort of large-scale infrastructure problem that that is also sort of another another big question. And I mean, a lot of the seniors that I work with. They've got kids and grandkids that gave them computers, bought them a subscription to AOL, and said, now we'll send you pictures of the grandkids. Right. And I work with a lot of people who, who maybe aren't in such extreme poverty who have been paying AOL every month for a computer they haven't used in five months. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there any kind of a, um, a general sense of this among librarians or, or individuals having to fight it on their own? Is this, is this an issue uh, within the librarian organizations of the country, or, or how, are, how is it being tackled by librarians in general? Well, I feel, like, I feel like it's definitely being approached. I mean, one of the problems that we have just in any profession where people love their jobs and stay at them is there's not as much turnover, there's not as much churn, and so there are actually a lot of librarians who have some of these same technological problems because they went to library school in the 80s. You know, when this kind of computer knowledge, they may be whiz database searchers, but they may not be great IT repair people. And so, you know, that's part of the problem. I think part of the problem is, you know, as an organization, um, the big library organizations have a hard time responding quickly to technological change, which is Really, I mean, the, the pace of technology change makes it very challenging to keep up with unless you really want to make it your main thing. Mm -hmm. And so I know librarians who are technologically savvy. I also know that they tend to gravitate towards places where they get paid well and places where they get to use their skills and places where there are other people like them. And so I think it's harder and harder in rural areas where librarians are paid, you know, $8 an hour, $9 an hour, $10 an hour, to even be able to attract the type of talent that may have a more current education or 
whatnot. I mean, there's a ton of people in ALA who are doing really exciting things with technology. Lita is the whole um, sort of division of ALA that's devoted to technology stuff, and the things that they do are, are wonderful. But it's hard to figure out how to take the wonderful things that they're doing. And the blogging community is also likewise mm-hmm. wonderful. A lot of interesting synthesis of ideas, a lot of sharing of stories, a lot of learning going on there. Mm-hmm. And then trickling it down to places where, you know, frankly, I couldn't afford to work. And I work, you know, for practically nothing as it is. Mm-hmm. And figuring out how to make that real to, you know, the people that want to live in these tiny communities and want to work in these tiny libraries. Technology really has uh, the potential to really help people be less isolated and then trying to figure out how to how to make that real and really make that work I think is the big the big challenge that we're facing well Jasmine West uh, you're doing a great job of it on librarian.net and uh, putting the putting the rare and back in librarian thanks for coming on Moby Liz radio thank you very much and that's our show for Friday, the 9th of December, 2005. Thanks to Jessamine West for coming on the show and showing us how to put the rare in back in librarian. And thanks, too, to our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, as well as the staff here at Melville House, Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and publisher Valerie Marians. Come back next week. We've got some really fabulous shows. The elusive Bernard-Henri Levy promises he'll be here. We'll also be talking to Colin Robinson, the recently departed head of the New Press. We'll also be talking to Joyce Carol Oates about her really terrible problems with writer's block. All that and more next week on Moby Lives. Until then, have a good weekend and remember, that whale is out there, man.
starts from scratch. La 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 la, life is just.